You're now listening to the Tax Smart REI podcast, your source for all things real estate, accounting, and tax. Here we reveal our secrets that can save you thousands in taxes, streamline your accounting process, and help grow your business. Stay tuned to hear insightful interviews with industry experts, successful real estate investors, and current clients on what strategies they use to grow their business and how they steer clear of Uncle Sam. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning into this episode of the Tax Smart REI podcast. Today we're going to be discussing Section 121, also known as the Home Sale Exclusion, which allows you to exclude up to $250,000 or $500,000 of capital gains when you sell your primary residence. But believe it or not, it's not that simple. There's a million and one nuances. It's exactly what we're going to be covering in today's episode. Um, We'll be right back after a quick word from Dual City Investments. Conventional investment strategies are changing. Gone are the days of investing in real estate strictly off of pro forma spreadsheets. The new market landscape has many investors reevaluating their portfolios and looking for the best place to passively earn a safe, consistent return. The Dual City Advantage Fund is an evergreen 506C open-ended fund that specializes in investing in commercial real estate. Dual City's ideal investor is an accredited investor who wants a portion of their portfolio in passive and diverse real estate investments without having the high risks of a single syndication. The Dual City Advantage Fund is outpacing public REIT ETFs by more than double, and while the rest of the market has been in flux, it has delivered consistent quarterly returns to its investors since its inception. To learn more about Dual City's value, strategies, and long-term vision, visit www.dualcityinvestments.com slash Tom or call 846-757-2429. Again, that's www.dualcityinvestments.com slash Tom or call 864-757-2429. So before we dive right into the home sale exclusion, we'll just talk a little bit about what is going on, some updates. So the first major update here that we need to discuss is we are hiring a senior tax associate. So if you are a CPA or an EA and you have real estate tax preparation and review experience, meaning that you've reviewed tax returns of preparers for at least a year or two years, hit us up. We want to talk to you because we're trying to grow our team and service more of our awesome clients across the United States. You'll see a lot of really cool stuff. You'll see that investing in real estate does indeed build massive wealth and it's a path to financial freedom and you'll be able to interact with and network with really cool real estate investors all across the country which are our clients of course so if you are interested in applying send us a short email on why you want to work at our firm and also your resume attach that to the email and you can send that to contact at the Absolutely. And we also have some updates for the TaxSmart investors community. Uh, we'll be hosting a masterclass tomorrow on maximizing vehicle deductions for real estate investors at 1 p.m. Eastern for the Insiders community. And uh, believe it or not, the home office actually plays a big role in maximizing your vehicle deductions. And we already have a masterclass available for real estate investors on home offices, uh, available for replay within the Insiders community. So if you're not already a member, you can go ahead and access these masterclasses by starting your 30-day free trial at www.taxsmartinvestors.com slash insiders. So we'll go ahead and see you on the inside. But without further ado, we're going to jump right into the home sale exclusion. So let's just start off with what is Section 121, also known as the home sale exclusion. So Section 121, better known as the home sale exclusion, allows you to deduct or allows you to exclude up to $250,000 of capital gains or $500,000 of capital gains if you're married 
when you sell your primary residence. All right. And that is key. It's for primary residences. And to kind of paint a, a little bit more of a picture of how this works, let's just use a quick example. So let's say that you and your spouse are ready to sell your primary residence and you're going to be recognizing a gain of $700,000 on the sale of your residence. The market shot up and uh, the good news is the home sale exclusion will allow you to exclude up to $500,000 in, in your case because you're married uh, from capital gains. So that means that you're not going to pay tax on $500,000 of capital gains. You'll only be paying capital gains on $200,000. Now, in many cases, you're actually able to exclude the entire capital gain because it's less than 500000 in this example. But it can be quite powerful, and many taxpayers actually use this to build their wealth, right? They'll go, they'll buy a house, they'll fix it up, they'll push the value of it up, live in it for two years, as we'll get into, and then go ahead and sell it. So what are the requirements for the home sale exclusion? Well, it can only be used once every two years. Uh, the second requirement is you must meet the ownership test. The ownership test says that you must own it for at least the last two years, and one spouse can own it, right? So say you're married and uh, it's in the titles and one spouse's name, that's all good, right? Now there's the use test. So the use test says that you must use it for at least any two out of the last five years as a primary residence. Now, if you are married, both spouses must live in it to fully qualify for that $500,000 deduction. If only one spouse lives in it, you're only going to get half. Now, some people ask, well, what is two years, right? Well, two years is 24 months or 730 days, right? That's a few different alternative ways to calculate the use test. Yeah. So pretty powerful strategy if you can do it right. Again, that two out of five years test. And that's a look back, right? Of all of the previous five years. Right. And you have to just live in it as your primary residence two of the past five years. Right. It doesn't have to be the two most recent five years, which we'll get into here in a second. It just has to be any right. two years. Now, there are some caveats, which we'll also talk about, but I've actually used this uh, two times in my life, and I'll probably be using it a third time here within the next couple of years. It's an awesome strategy because you put a down payment down, you buy, and especially over the past you know, eight years or so, as the market's really run up in value, you know, I, I don't know that this is going to be replicatable going forward. So take my words with a grain of salt. This is not investment advice, but what I did is I put very low money down on my very first property that I bought. It was a three-unit property, so I had to basically allocate the Section 121 exclusion to just my one unit that I was living in. You can't use Section 121 on the rentals. So you can do this if you're house hacking, which was really cool. So that's what I did. And I put very low money down, and I basically doubled my money, which still wasn't that much money. But then I rolled it into the next property, and, and that was in Raleigh, North Carolina. And Raleigh, North Carolina is like blowing up. It's still blowing up, and it was at the beginning of blowing up when I was buying at the time. We bought in an area that that just like reaped the benefits of all the economic growth. Um, we bought this like you know dorky little ranch house that we had to go in and fix up and stuff, and we like lived in a construction zone for probably a year and a half, and that was that was pretty gnarly. I don't think my wife will let me do that again, but we built a lot of equity as a result of the uh, the construction that we did and the appreciation in the market. And we were able to 121 all of that into this property that I'm in today. So it's like, it's a really powerful strategy. It helps you retain the value that you're creating or the value that the market's creating for you without having to pay the government, without having to pay tax. Every little dollar that you can save will compound for you over time. And I've been a firsthand benefit of this. So it's a Awesome strategy, really important to understand the rules and the benefits. Uh, we'll keep going through that here. So let's talk about what if you rent 
the property out after you live in it. So let's say that you live in it for two years, right? So you buy new construction or something. Uh, I don't know if that's a good example, but you know, let's just go with it. You buy a brand new home, you move into it. You live there for two years to the day, and then you move out and you rent it. How does that work? Yeah, say you were to move out to rent it. Well, in this case, because you lived in it first, you can actually go ahead and use the full exclusion if, if it's available to you, right? You can go ahead and use it, uh, no questions asked. There's no period of non-qualifying use, and we'll get into that in a second. Uh, so like to give an example here, right? Say you bought a property for $200,000, you lived in it for two years, you rented it for three years, now you sold it for 500000 right? And let's assume you're married and both spouses lived in it. Well, in that case, you'd have a $300,000 capital gain. Um, so the entire capital gain itself would be eligible for the exclusion because it's under 500k, right? However, depreciation recapture is not excluded. So you'd still have to pay the depreciation recapture tax, right? Because here's what happens, right? You lived in it for two years, then you sold it three years later. So you're within two out of the last five years. And you had a $300,000 capital gain, the market appreciated $300,000. And that's excluded, but you started depreciating it when you started renting it out after you moved out. That depreciation recapture is not excluded. You're still going to have to pay depreciation recapture tax when you sell that property. So that's kind of how it works when you rent it out after living in it. And uh, that's the more beneficial way. But what happens when you rent it out first? Are you looking for a law firm that can handle your real estate transactions with expertise and efficiency? Thrasher Law Offices is a premier boutique law firm specializing in real estate acquisitions, private placement syndications, debt and equity financings, and corporate transactions. Their team of experienced attorneys understands the complexities of real estate transactions from purchase agreements to fund offerings and everything in between. Thrasher Law Offices advises their clients on structuring transactions for real estate development acquisitions, debt and equity financings, commercial leasings, and has extensive experience in private placement syndications, helping businesses raise capital through private offerings. Thrasher Law Offices builds long-term relationships with the clients they serve, creating strategies and opportunities not just for today, but for your future needs as well. With their knowledge and expertise, you can trust that Thrasher Law Offices will guide you through the legal process with ease and confidence as you make critical decisions that will shape the future of your business. Visit www.thrasherpllc.com to learn more and schedule a free consultation. Again, to learn more and schedule a free consultation, visit www.thrasherpllc.com. The link will also be in the show notes, but for right now, we'll dive right back into today's episode. Well, I just want to reiterate the renting after living in it. So again, you live in it for at least two years. You can then rent it out for three years after the last day that you are living in the property and using it as your primary residence. So it's three years to the day that you have to basically sell the property and qualify. If you sell three years in one day after that date, you do not qualify for the Section 121 exclusion. So it's really important to understand because you know if you're looking at offsetting a $500,000 capital gain and you're in the highest tax bracket, you're talking about 110 or so thousand dollars in taxes. Uh, and that's just at the federal level, you know, you'd then have to go and assess state. So it's really important to get this right and have a plan with your primary residences. Uh, we have clients that do this. They will buy, it's kind of like a um, unique version of house hacking, if that makes sense. Like they'll go buy a three bed, two bath ranch style home. They'll live in it for two years. They'll fix it up as they're going and then they'll move out and they'll hold it as a rental for three years. And then they have the option to either 121 it and wipe out up to 500K cap gains. Again, if you're married, if you're not, it's 250 or they'll just keep holding it and then they'll 1031 exchange it later. But a lot of our clients will 
liquidate it so they don't have to worry about the 1031. They don't have to worry about basis tracking and all that type of stuff after that. They just eliminate the 500K cap gains. But as Tom mentioned, depreciation recapture is not included in that 121 elimination. So you do have to be careful with that depreciation because that can sometimes surprise people. But to be able to wipe out you know, up to 500K capital gains is for sure a benefit. But as Tom said, that's if you live in it and then rent it. What happens if you rent it and then live in it? Because I know I know a bunch of our listeners on here right now, all your wheels are turning and you're like, oh man, these guys are giving me another strategy. I'm going to go live in my rental properties. Right. right. Doesn't quite work the same way. <laughs> right, right, right. And uh, it, it's not so advantageous when you do that. So what, what happens is when you rent the property out first, you're going to have a period of uh, what's called non-qualifying use. And that period of non-qualifying use, it's going to be partially not eligible for the capital gain. So I'll kind of just talk about how that works because this is a little bit little bit nuanced here. All right. So the way the period of non-qualified use works and how it kind of limits the amount of capital gain you're going to be eligible to exclude is kind of like this, right? So you take the years of non-qualified use. So that's the period of time that you rented it out before you moved in and you're divided by the total number of years owned. Okay. So let's just say that you owned, say you rented out for three years. All right, then you lived in it for two years and you own it for a total period of five, right? So you're going to take three, the period of time you rented it out, the non-qualifying use divided by five, the total years you owned it, you're going to get 60% in this example. Then you're going to multiply that 60% by the capital gain, okay, by the total capital gain you have when you sell the property. So let's say you have a $300,000 capital gain, you would only be eligible to exclude up to 180 k of that capital gain because of the period of non-qualifying use. So as you can see, when you rent it out first, the entire gain is not always going to be eligible for the exclusion. Yep. Yep. Great point. And really important to understand. So you can't get creative with this and try to just move into your rentals every two years. It's not going to work like that, but you still do get some little benefit. So, you know, you could make it work if you bought a property that maybe you were going to make your primary residence, but for whatever reasons, your plans changed. So you decide to rent it out first. You can still benefit from the Section 121 exclusion. It's just not going to be as good as it otherwise could have been had you been the first one to occupy that property under your ownership instead of your rentals. So now let's talk about partial 121 exclusions, Tom. What Tell us a little bit about that. Right. So um, in certain circumstances, you may not be able to live in your property for the full two years right, that you need to in order to execute this strategy. There's a lot of different reasons why you may need to move. And the regulations kind of address this. Um, so I'm going to first kind of start off with just like kind of what are some of the reasons that you may need to move that are eligible reasons. And I'll kind of get into how that partial calculation oh. works. And before you do, I want to just jump in and say the general theme of the partial exclusion here that Tom's about to go over is that there was like a surprise. Okay. So you got to go into it with that. There's like, I'll, I'll let Tom kind of run through the examples here. But my overall point that I'm trying to make here is you can't sell your property and then do tax planning. Right. <laughs> you have to, you have to do the tax planning before you sell your property because we get these requests. It's probably like two to three times a month. Hey, I sold my primary residence. I just learned about the section 121 thing. Can you help me qualify for one of these partial exclusion things that I'm seeing? It's like, well, what about your situation was unforeseen? What was a surprise? And there's generally nothing there. So be really careful 
selling your property before getting any sort of tax planning. Uh, it's something that we try to preach to our clients a lot too. But go go ahead, Tom. Sorry to interrupt. Right, right, right. No problem. Tax planning is definitely definitely important. You want to be proactive with it, right? You want to figure this stuff out before you start doing transactions. But having said that, there are a few different reasons why you might legitimately need to leave your property and you could qualify for a partial exclusion. So the first one is a change of employment. So if you change employers and your new place of employment is 50 miles or more away from the original employer, that's one way, right? Or if, if you don't have a place of employment before that and you just get hired, for example, well, then it has to be 50 miles or more away from your home. How does that work with remote work? Right. So, for example, say you're working remotely, you're working from home, and now you go take a job that's 50 miles away from your home and you're required to be in the office. So you go work for like Elon Musk, for example, he requires you to be in the office. Well, that has to be 50 miles or more away from your home in that case, because you didn't have a place of employment before that, really. What if you are working for a remote company and then you switch to another remote company and they don't require that you have to come into the office, but you decide to sell your home and move to a different state because you just got a big pay raise? Well, I don't believe this would work in that case. So don't quote me on this. I'd have to look at the, the fine tooth comb with the regulations, but I don't believe that work in this case because you don't have a requirement to be in the office, right? Like there's no requirement at this point. Like this is for when you move and the regulations assume that you have to be <laughs> in the place where you're being employed. That's kind of what this is for, right? Like here's what the regulations say, right? Just to kind of give a more detailed version of it, right? The qualified individual's new place of employment must be at least 50 miles farther from the residence that is sold or exchanged than it was from the former place of employment, or if there was no former place of employment, the distance between the, the qualified individual's new place of employment and the residence is sold, it must be at least 50 miles away from the residence being sold, basically. So that's how it works. If you're not required to be in there, right? If you're not required to be there, then chances are it's not going to work for you. You can't just do it because it's convenient for you. This has to be done because of legitimate need to move, as Brandon was kind of alluding to before. And presumably, when you change employment, you don't know that you're going to change employment, which is why it's a little bit unforeseen. Now, there are some things for health reasons. And I'm not going to go into the details of all of the health. It's kind of nuanced. But if you have health circumstances like a, a disease or an illness that requires you to move to maybe a different climate or something along those lines for the purposes of getting cured or or getting rid of the disease, then you could also move as well. There's some nuances there, whether or not you do need a physician's note or not. Um, so if you do think health is a reason, you definitely want to get with your tax professional so they can go through the regulations with you uh, and make sure you can qualify for that. But health is a reason why you need, may need to move, not just for general well health, right? <laughs> oh, you know, it, my quality of life would be better if I moved to Florida, right? Than living in like Toronto, for example. No, it has to be or uh, has or Buffalo, let's keep it United States, but um, it has to be for a specific health purpose, right? Uh, it's kind of what it is there. Now there's another one, um, unforeseen circumstances, which is a bit broad, but there's some guidance in terms of what counts, right? If there's a death and a, because of a death in your family, you have to move, that could be unforeseen circumstances. So there could be a change in your employment status where you're unable to continue paying your living costs. That could be a reason why you might have to move. Uh, it could be a divorce or legal separation. Multiple births resulting from the same pregnancy. Believe it or not, I, I think I had a client in the past who qualified for this because their wife had had twins. <laughs> and I was like, 
that's an interesting way to look at it, right? What does that mean? Is that just like like our house isn't big enough for the family now? Is that kind of what they're trying to get out there? That's kind of what it sounds like, right? Like, okay, you know, you had a house, it was a two bedroom house, and you're maybe you were ready to have you know two people in the same room, but now you have something you have to put three in the same room. Okay, I can't do this anymore, and we have to move. Um, so there's natural man-made disasters or acts of war, terrorism that could cause you to need to move. Could also be involuntary conversions of residences. So in other words, eminent domain, the government comes and just seizes your property and says, buy, uh, they qualify for partial exclusion in those circumstances. Now, it is, I just want to make a quick note on that. Uh, I always think that we think that that's like a wild thing that the government can do. Just, you know, come in and take your property because they're trying to build and expand or whatever. But there's a new road project going in near my house. And there's this whole group that's like trying to protest it and everything. And it's just really interesting to kind of see both sides of the argument. And it kind of occurred to me, it's like, well, if for any of our infrastructure to be built, that's what the government's done. It's like, like, I don't think we really think about that. It's like all the roads you drive on, all the infrastructure that's built was somebody's property at some point. So that that imminent domain thing, that involuntary conversion can happen. And it ha- probably happens all the time and oh, it's everywhere. Real. It's real. Yeah. Yeah. It happens all the time. It happens all the time. All right. So there's a little bit more for the unforeseen. There's other unforeseen circumstances that may apply, but they're unforeseen. So that's kind of the, the there's like a broader uh, way you could apply for that. Uh, so uh, just something to keep in mind with unforeseen circumstances. Uh, but having said that, that's the reasons why you might qualify for a partial exclusion. The way it actually works is typically by taking the total months or days that you use the property and dividing it by the amount of months or days you need to qualify. So for example, 15 months divided by 24 months, 24 months is two years. So take 15 divided by 24, then multiplying it by the exclusion amount itself. And that's how it works. So for example, if you took 15 months, you lived in it for 15 months out of the 24 months you need to qualify. It's going to be about 62.5%. You're going to go ahead and multiply it. Let's assume you're married. You qualify for the 500,000. You're going to multiply it by 500,000. And you're going to get 312,500. That's the amount of exclusion that you'd be eligible for. Uh, so that's kind of how the partial works. Again, there are some nuances in here. So if you are considering uh, selling your home or you are, or you're, you're going to be selling your home, make sure you get with your tax professional. Make sure you get clear on how this stuff works if you think it applies to you. All right. So we got uh, one more, one more little part here. And that's the interplay between the 1031 exchange and section 121. Um, we get these questions all the time. Can I use a 1031 exchange and section 121 at the same time? And the short answer is you can in many cases. So the first kind of scenario you might find yourself in is can you mix the 1031 exchange and the section 121 exclusion after renting out your property, right? So in other words, you lived in it, all right? And now you're going to sell it. Well, uh, we know that Rev Proclamation 2005-14 allows you to do this. Then there's also a revenue procedure, another RevProc 2008-16, which provides a safe harbor that if you rent out your residence for the preceding two years at fair market rate for 14 or more days, that you can use a 1031 exchange. So in other words, uh, to kind of paint a picture here, what that looked like, you lived in the property for however many years, and then you rented it out for two years. Well, now it's eligible for both the Section 121 and eligible for 1031 exchange. So basically, the way this would work is you'd exclude up to two hundred fifty or five hundred thousand dollars of gains. Then the rest could be deferred using a ten thirty one exchange. That's how it kind of works there. 
Again, a more complex transaction, definitely want to get with a tax professional if you're going to be doing something like this. Don't want to get mixed up in the middle of doing this. Uh, you might run afoul of the rules and blow the 1031 exchange or blow your opportunity to use this at the section 121 exclusion. Now, the last one here, the last one we're going to talk about today, because there's plenty, we could easily probably go on for an hour on this. Um, but uh, what about moving in after acquiring a property via 1031 exchange, right? So maybe you just acquired a new property and eventually you want to move in, right? That happens all the time. Well, RevProc 2008-16 also provides a safe harbor for that. So if you held it for investment, so in other words, for rent for 24 months following the exchange, well, then you can move into it and they're not going to challenge it. Now, I just do want to say that this is a safe harbor that prevents the IRS from challenging you if you meet the safe harbor. You might be able to do it in less time than 24 months, but you might be opening yourself up to scrutiny. So again, something to take into account. However, in this scenario, you must own the property for at least five years to qualify for Section 121, right? Like you don't always need to own it for five years to use Section 121, but when you combine it with a 1031 exchange, you do need to own it for at least five years in this scenario. And then um, you're going to have to go through the, uh, the period of non-qualifying use calculation that we discussed a little bit before. So to sum this up here, you can use and you can combine Section 121 with 1031 exchanges. I just want to make sure that you have a clear understanding of how the rules work before you go ahead and, and try to use this. So, you know, we covered a lot here today on today's episode, uh, but believe it or not, there's even more on Section 121. There's a lot of nuances, again, with uh, 1031 exchanges and partial exclusions. So if you're considering selling your home or maybe you're about to sell your home and you want some guidance on how this works and how this applies to you, can you take advantage of some of these strategies? we can help, right? So there's a few different ways we can help. The first one is the TaxSmart Insiders community. Uh, if you do have questions about this, uh, we have a private forum, we have live Q&As, and we also have one-on-one -on -one paid consultations with our team where you can get advice on your specific situation. And you can start your 30-day free trial to the TaxSmart Insiders community by going to www.taxsmartinvestors.com insiders. And you could start it today, go ahead and get answers to your questions or you can become a client. We can work with you one-on-one, -on -one, put together a tax plan for you to not only help you sell your primary residence, but also look at your entire portfolio and see how we could optimize your portfolio from a tax perspective. So if you're interested in becoming a client, you go to www.therealestatecpa.com and click the get started button, fill out that form, and we'll reach out to you with next steps. That's all for today's episode. We'll catch you on the next episode of TaxSmart REI. Thanks for listening to today's show. If you enjoyed the show, please find us on iTunes and leave us a review. You can also email us at contact at therealestatecpa.com with any feedback or topic suggestions. We are always taking on new clients and with the new tax laws in play, you really don't want to navigate this alone. Let us help you save money on taxes and with your accounting and CFO needs. To become a client, navigate to our client page at therealestatecpa.com and fill out a web form with as much detail about your situation as possible. Thanks so much for listening. Have a great rest of your week.